Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David Shields. After we talked about his film, Marshawn Lynch, A History, we actually sat in New York and talked about the legacy of G.K. Chesterton for a little while. We talked a little bit about what we like about his writing and his thinking. So this is kind of a different sort of give and take episode. And it was a really fun conversation we had on this beautiful patio in a New York City hotel. I give you David Shields. David, this is like a bonus for listeners because I wanted to, I remember after our last conversation in New York, where we were talking about the trouble with men and somehow we referenced Chesterton. I don't know how we got in, how we even got to it, but I just remember thinking I wanted to talk about Chesterton with you. I've emailed you. We, right, decided, to do a hey, whole... we, we could like talk, uh, I think that you type. wanted to do like a whole, I was like, well, whole... wrote something about or, it. I yeah, like, I know, yeah. which I think I would, um, put it past us, you know, like I, Trying to find this one quote of Chesterton in in my printout that is sort of for everything. That, for people that don't know, Chesterton was a guy who was a journalist, basically, and writer. He lived, I think he died in 1936 or something. Pretty late. I mean, because I always think of him as, as 19th century, but but he lived well into the 20th yeah, century. Yeah, the 20th century. He was good friends with George Bernard Shaw. They were sort not, of yeah, combatants, not, sort of. Yeah, and they were, but they were friendly combatants. Totally. So could not have been more different. Totally. Shaw was an Irish thin teetotaler. Chesterton was immense, uh, you know, English guy who liked to you know imbibe. And, uh, right. <laughs> but was a com- convert to Christianity from atheism and to Catholicism, which in early 20th century England, this is a Marshall Lynch protestish. <laughs> in that you would have, like, if you were going to become a Christian, you would have been a more like something Anglo-Catholic. Right. Or, or, uh, you wouldn't have done something that seems so anti-modern as become Roman Catholic. It's a good point that he's a deeply contrarian. Everything he says is about staking out a contrary position. So so you wanted to share some of your favorite Chesterton In a way, and you know, that you'll take them in ways, because I feel like, yeah, I mean, this is, there's this amazing work that I really recommend to your listeners called Aphorisms from the Work of G.K. Chesterton compiled by Ralph Wood, who, who taught or still teaches at, at Baylor. In oh, Te- I know who Ralph Wood is. Do you know him? He's written on... Is he still very much a teacher he's there? He's written at, oh, about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and uh-huh. some other stuff. Like, I know Wood's stuff... Tan- I mean, I... Like, tangentially. Tangentially. Like, I don't know it well, but I know he's... But he's gathered these terrible... Anyway, there's so many lines I could spend... I feel like I could teach a course in which all we, that we did was study these 28... Aphorisms are great because they have lives of their own. That's why Nietzsche, I think, wrote this way because they have, they can be collage. They can be part of a superstructure, but they can also sort right. of stand on their own. So they have they have interesting dynamic life like that. I mean, there's even a wonderful preface that that Wood writes to this. It's, it's awfully good. He he quotes this one guy saying, "Paradox has a way of turning language against itself by asserting both terms of a contradiction at once." Pursued for its own sake, paradox can seem vulgar or meaningless. 
It's extremely fatiguing to the mind. But pursued for the sake of wordless truth, it can rend veils and even, like the grotesque, approach the holy. That is to say, H-O-L-Y. Breaks rules. Paradox can penetrate to new and unexpected realms of experience, discovering relationships that syntax generally obscures. And that, you know, basically all of of Chesterton's aphorisms are almost always incredibly paradoxical. Anyway, there's so many here I would love to talk with you about. The one that just just kills me. I don't know if you have it up on your... I don't have it But anyway, but basically the one that I just love, it's sort of longer than some of the other ones. I hope that your listeners can follow it through two or three sentences. But it's basically this. And if you want to follow along, you can if you want, Scott. Oh, gotcha. No man is really good until he knows how bad he is or might be. Till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about, quote, criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types and deficient skills. Till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees, till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. That is so utterly profound. Isn't that incredible? I mean, talk about Marshawn Lynch. I mean, the criminal is in with you, motherfucker, you know? You've got to understand that. I mean, you can take it anywhere you want. You can take it to Trump. But tell me where you want to go with that. I was thinking, I had this friend who texted me, sent me a text message driving across the country. He's not a religious person, but his father and I were really good friends. That's how he and I became friends. His father's deceased. He's in his mid, mid, late thirties. And he said, I think original sin, I've been thinking about this. I think it's total bullshit. And I think it's really harmful. I text back. I said, I think it's incredibly liberating. And I sent him this quote from Alain de Patin, who, mm-hmm. who he, in an interview, who he's saying how liberating, even though he's an atheist, he finds this concept of original sin that stu- he's like, imagine being in a marriage or a deep friendship with somebody when this starts as the premise that they're flawed, broken, f- faltering, and, and how much them. Uh, versus if you have this perfectionist idea, which leads to just dehumanizing and judgment. And he kind of was like, I didn't think about that way because he was seeing these fundamentalist Christian signs. And I said, well, those people probably just don't take sin seriously enough. I mean, because there's a thin kind of Christianity that that looks at religion as sort of life coach self-improvement that's really not... It's a thin veneer. And usually it's... You know... For the congregants, it manages their anxiety, and for the leaders, it kind of gives them control. There's a control anxiety kind of thing. Like, like I'll give you a bunch of religious to do lists, and then it's, you're sort, of, done. it's, it's all... sort of like if your thumb, hurt, your my my foot really hurts. Oh, well, give me your hand. I hit your thumb. Well, you're not. You're not thinking about your foot anymore. So it's like if I give you all these 
religious things to do, you'll forget about the deeper anxiety, which would just make it worse. Right. So I think that invitation into our own fallibility, right, ought, ought to make for the most kind of liberative politics, interpersonal, because you, you just realize that, you know, my, a friend of mine who's an Episcopal rector right in this area, uh, young guy, he says, you know, we're all, uh, we're all two or three decisions bad decisions and a couple days away from being a tabloid headline. And right now I'm on great too. <laughs> and, and it's that's, a great line. That's so, that's true, so beautiful. Right? You know, that, that, you know, uh, it, that we're all ambiguous, right? And, and, and the degree to which we don't realize that is the degree to which our expectation, what is, what do they say? I've heard of this. It's, it's, I think it's origin, originates in AA or something. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Wow. Yeah. It, that does sound very AA, yeah. Because yeah, AA is very interested in resentment, yeah. Yeah, and I think that so much, the, the, the more you have a view like this, like Chesterton's saying, that then so you, you have you have less premeditated resentments. because It's you're thinking, thrilling, oh, isn't are, it? Yeah, exactly. It's so alive-making. Yes, yes. I just love, I mean, that I've read that so many times, and part of it is the brilliance and beauty of its syntax. You have no idea where he's going. You know, that you think, I mean, that you probably do because you know Chesterton well, and I've learned to read Chesterton over the years. But, you know, you kind of think, is he going to actually talk about criminals? Is he going to talk about apes? He's setting up the reader for this beautifully vertiginous fall into sin. You know, like it's so, so at the end he says, you've captured one criminal under your own hat. It's like, Oh my God, the body blow there is amazing. Amazing. And then until you've captured them under your hat, you don't know the human condition. Exactly. That you are, you're, yeah, that you're really incredibly self-deceived. And that kind of gets us, you know, that you were telling me about sort of Jordan Peterson, Peterson oh yeah. and, and Zizek. Like, tell me about, like, was... I, I watched that debate because it was hyped up. And, and the idea, the premise was that it was going to be about Marxism and happiness. Oh, yeah. Marxism, capitalism, and happiness or something. But the best part was when they both got dialoguing. And Shushek, right. he quotes this. Was I, there a moderator or just the two was, of them? And the moderator was not terrible. I mean, it was okay. But Zizek quoted, I have it here. He quoted this passage from, uh, alluding to uh, this passage, or he quoted part of it, if I can find it. Uh, he was quoting a part from Chesterton where he says that, uh, oh, this is it. He says, he's quoting what Chesterton says. This is terribly revolutionary, Christianity, that a good man may have his back to the wall is no more than we already knew, but that God could have his back to the wall is a boast for all insurgents forever. Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt that omnipotence made God incomplete. Christianity alone has felt that God, to be holy God, must have been a rebel as well as a king. And and he was sort of saying how Chesterton understood this, and that when you're when you realize the terrible... Is that Zizek saying that? That's Chesterton. He's quoting Chesterton okay, right there. That sound, yeah, that's yeah. so beautiful. And, and he's saying that what Chesterton realizes is that when you realize how cruel the, the, the reality can be and how brokenhearted and, and alienation that you're not far from God, the God is there in, in the alienation. And, and I, wow, I got so emotional thinking that's why I'm a Christian. Like this sentiment emotionally is what has kept me in the game. And I looked over at Jordan Peterson, and Jordan Peterson looked like a deer in the headlights. And he said, that, that's a beautiful sentiment. I mean, and he starts thinking about it, and I'm like, wow. Because here Peterson, right, is the champion of all that's, you know, traditional Judeo-Christian, you know, and all these people are, oh, yeah, yeah. You know. And Zizek is, is, is this sort of revolutionary. And I'm thinking, he, quoting, he's at the heart of why people 
to the degree that people still are Christians, this is why. When they really get, this is why people stay in the game. I know. And Peterson didn't understand it, which was fascinating. God, I have to watch this. It's in, and it's, it's, and my it's, friend Megan Dom, who is right, has urged me to watch it too and she's she's a huge yeah and i i have to watch this video it's easily findable on, oh, YouTube. Yeah, right on youtube yeah but i mean i th- it's so fascinating talking because you know that you and i share a lot of intellectual interest and existential interest and i'm it's sort of like i'm religious without the religion i mean i feel like i'm a i'm interested in all these questions but i don't make the spiritual leap that you do for who knows what dna reasons you know i grew up a, a secular jew on the west coast you know and i'm just i'm not a believer, you know, but it's like I share all this yearning and all this passion. I just don't happen. Yeah, I wasn't you know, raised I, in in the church per se. Like, right, we were Methodists. I think. I mean, but I didn't. We didn't go to church very much. Right, like my parents were. My, I was raised in a pretty working class. Like, you know, our parents had college degrees in Philadelphia. Or? Or, yeah, Southern New Jersey, mm-hmm. and I became a Christian because of the witness this fundamentalist kid who was like two years older than me. So he could throw, he was in middle school. He, he could do everything in my mind. And he was a fundamentalist Christian and told me to pray the sinner's prayer. And I remember running home when he told me to do, I would have done anything that kid told me to do. Tommy Bachman was his name. This was in grade school. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I run in and I'm like, <laughs> you know, my mom's like, you know, she's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, did you know if you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, oh, brother. you get to go to heaven when you die? And my mom goes, you sure. And I, I remember saying, I said, why didn't you tell me? Right. And I ran upstairs and I, I locked my door and Tommy said it had to be personal. So I even got in my closet. And prayed the prayer, and and something happened weird, like mystical or something. And you were about ten or so. Yeah, ten. Or, and then from that point, I, it unfolded, and I, I started to go to church later and youth group, and it was evolved. And but it was, some, but for me, it was liberative. I mean, what Chesterton talks about, it was a real gradual conversion because it it made me more cosmopolitan. Like it, it threw me open to the world. It and, really it, seems like it has for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm just getting to know you over these conversations, but and Chesterton seems really alive to the world too. I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like such a galvanizing and muscular Christianity that you know so much of the bullshit evangelical Christianity that we see in political discourse is you know utterly death dealing. It has no galvanizing or life giving thing. I mean. The way Chesterton does it, or the way that you do it, seems so, you know, beautiful to me. But here's another line that I really like. Um, I mean, that I could just quote him all day long, but basically there's this one. I mean, this is straight out of our conversation about Marshawn Lynch. He says, silence is the unbearable repartee. Mm. I mean, that's practically the... Hmm. That's the you know like you know as they say the opposite of love isn't hate it's, it's indifference yeah and it's sort of like when Lynch says you know I'm not going to get mad at your question I'm going to say thanks for asking like that's such unbearable repartee yeah and then up, then somehow just above that we have in this compilation well just below it nine times out of ten the coarse word is the word that condemns an evil. And the refined word is the word that excuses it, you know? So Chesterton is in love, and there's even this this beautiful line later in Chesterton, which he, he, he talks about the only ongoing poetry is slang, that slang for Chesterton has an unbelievably vital poetry, that it's cool that Chesterton, as elegant 
as his writing is, gets how utterly alive slang is. And obviously, Marshawn Lynch is, you know, hugely devoted to all things idiomatic. And in a way, so much of it is about his, his refusal, again, as we've said, to talk about, talk in the register of whatever you want to call it, the majority culture or, or white culture or corporate business culture. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. This other line that is more characteristic of Chesterton is he says, all men are ordinary men. The extraordinary men are those who know it. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, I guess all these are circling the same point, which is fallen, tragedy, the comedy and the beauty of human sadness. And just being there for that, being present for that. Yeah. And there's, you know, the, this, that's just the, so. The Hegel connection, I think, was the, with Zizek and this appreciation is like for Chesterton, he has this great quote where he says, you know, the pre modern man would have rather had two truths in tension than settle for a half truth. Whereas moderns, we'd well, let's just take the half. If something's paradoxical, we'll shave it off and take the half truth. And I think that. That leads you into that dialectic where, where contradiction is not a problem. Actually, it's probably where the truth is. So, you know, I was listening to this Catholic bishop. I had this podcast. He's a very learned guy. And he was talking about how Chesterton takes Hume, you know, the idea that we don't experience causality, right? We, we, we see X and Y, but we don't, you know, causality is a belief. And Chesterton like he takes that and runs with it. And, and he says that, where's this, I, this line at, uh, where he basically talks about how uh, he, it's a cha- in a chapter in orthodoxy called the Eth- ethics of Elfland, where he said, basically God uh, is younger than we are because we're as old as our dreams, young as our dreams, as old as our cynicism. And he says that the sun rises every morning. I do not rise every morning, but the variation is due not to my activity, but to my inaction. It might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, 
but to a rush of life. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not, not absence of life, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. <laughs> And, and there he's saying, like, it's in, it's in the one seemingly mundane that the magic is. So he's taking, he, this guy's saying he's taking Hume and something like causality and re, it's, it's sort of like Marx, or uh, 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 Weber talks about disenchantment. We live in this disenchantment world. And Chesterton finds ways to re-enchant it for a modern. And that's I think great. The re-enchantment. Is, he's all about that. I, yeah. And that's the world I want to live in, a re-enchanted world. That's really, I mean, it's, uh, turning of where to go with that other than Chesterton. I mean, I think Chesterton, at least at his best, he really loves the world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he loves the world and it's like, you know, one time he said, Roman, he said, Catholicism is a cigar, a thick steak and a glass of Burgundy. He says, that's Catholicism. <laughs> that's wild. That's wild. Sign me up for that one. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like that. It's a little Samuel Johnson there, you know, where he says, uh, you know, has the line, you know, the throne of all happiness, of all human happiness is a seat at a saloon or something like yeah, that. You know, yeah. that's that, it's very much that, which on some level is just, you know, a rationalization for, you know, hanging out. On the other hand, there's something re-enchant, re-enchantment about that's so moving that we must, you know, there's this Oscar Wilde line who says, you know, the only solution to the soul is the senses. Yeah. I mean, that, it's like, there's the soul, then there's the senses. We, you know, that's a very abstract line, but he's saying, you know, we must applaud the senses. And that's very, it's very Chesterton, obviously. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we need to be at home in the world as right. embodied beings. Right. Which, in a way, is kind of great, bringing us back to that. You know, that's almost this amazing through line between our conversation on Lynch and our, our line on Chesterton be in the world but not of it it's this sort of wonderful lynch is enchanting he is enchanting in the best sense of the the word right and enchanting in a in a context that's so disenchanting mean, there's nothing more disenchanting than that sports industrial complex right i mean it's so deadening i know it's thrilling and yet disenchanting right i mean we could just go on and on but like there here's i'm trying to think of other lines or um this is very much related to what we're talking about there are there are those who enjoy feelings too much to enjoy anything simply beautiful. They are esthetes. And the definition of an esthete is a man who is experienced enough to admire a good picture, but not inexperienced enough to see it. I don't know if you can follow that orally. There are those who enjoy feelings too much to enjoy anything simply beautiful. They are esthetes. And the definition of an esthete is a man who is experienced enough to admire a good picture, but not experienced enough to see it, not inexperienced enough to see it. Yeah, yeah. So this is. Can you unpack? You can probably. Yeah, yeah, where you think about like. Where it's almost like the the critical eye, the critical quote unquote critical aesthetic eye, you, you can't see past your lens. Like right. C.S. Lewis is something great. He says you you want to be able to see through some things, not everything. So you want to be able to see through the windows, so you can look at the rose garden outside. But you don't want to see through the rose garden. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of I think he's he's poking at a kind of uh, 
a kind of self-aggrandizing aesthete that really can't see the beauty that a normal person could see looking at a painting. Right. They can only see the sort of, it's almost like the, you know, the, the artwork, they see it as sort of a, a pat on their own back that they can say, this is a great piece of art. They don't realize the art judges them. It's greatness judges them, not they, the art. Like, that's that's great. I mean, you better enter the picture. You have you have got to enter the picture, whether that is a literal picture of the world. You have got to enter the picture. You know, the um, this is very is um. Well, I mean, this sort of builds on something that you talk. You know, he goes, "This is what you were saying about the reenchantment. The mystery of life is the plainest part of it." You know, there's that famous thing of Samuel Johnson saying. You know, someone was saying. You know, this is famous. I forget. I think it was Hume, and perhaps we're back to Hume again, where someone was saying, you know, you can't. Someone was paraphrasing Hume for Johnson, and he was saying, you know, existence. You, you can't prove the existence of the physical world, and sort of Samuel Johnson famously put. He, he someone said, "Can you refute this idea that everything is subjective? The world doesn't actually exist. That we just make it up in our own mind." So. Samuel Johnson famously, you know, and very Britishly put, he was walking with his companion. He put his foot on a boulder and pushed the boulder down a hill and said, I refute it thus. (laughs) Isn't that great? Yeah. I refute it thus. Yeah. I mean, that's just so Samuel Johnson like, and yet it's an eloquent statement. You've got to put your foot on the boulder. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just love that idea. Like, how can you argue against that? Yeah. And yet, it's fun, you know, that you and I are both intellectuals, or at least we're trying to be intellectuals, but we're also trying to talk ourselves into the physical world, whereas other people probably just are in the physical yeah, world. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but anyway, I don't know do if you can play... Do you home in the physical world? I mean, I feel like, like in The Trouble with Men, I mean, on one level, you, you're the, you present yourself as pretty honestly sensual, and yet, and yet it also seems like you float between this like deep engagement with you as an embodied being and also like an alienation from it at the same time. Right. I mean, I would say that's, that's a good insight. I mean, I feel like as they say, I'm working on that. I mean, I do think I'm in some ways, I mean, I was, you know, I was, you know, kind of like a serious high school athlete and I'm like, there's part of me that's very physical. And I think, I don't know what I think, you know, I think that's a real question. And I think, I feel I'm probably better at rhapsodizing about the physical and less good at embodying the physical. I mean, where do you stand on it? Are, are you, are you sort of, are you as good as Chesterton tells us to be about, <laughs> about embodying it? I feel like, you know, I'm, I, I think I that- could be a more, I could, you know, I'm a somewhat self-conscious being and I think I could be more deliriously physical. I think, I think I like, <laughs> The physicality. I think my alienation is more. I feel lone. It's more uh, horizontal. Like it's more. Uh, yeah. Like I feel. Uh, I can be present physically in the world, but I can be gregarious and connected in a room, and feel all alone at the same time. So horizontal in what sense? And like like the plane of relationship. So I feel like on one level. Because you're a pastor, you can you engage with all these people. Yeah, and I like people in general. Right. And I often find that I think if I just make one more connection and feel more 
connected in the world that I won't feel lonely anymore. Right. Which never goes Exactly. Away. It never goes away. I like that. That's it. Here, here's another line if we want. <clears throat> Again, he's so, I mean, I, I learned so much from him as a writer and reader because he's such a good sentence maker. You can tell he studied Latin. I mean, I, you know, he studied Latin in high school and college and, uh, yeah, he wanted to be a visual artist, which he never Chesterton, which, yeah, which never materialized. I Interesting. Mean, he, are, are there drawings of his that I are? I have not seen them, but I just know that that's what he studied, and he eventually became a journalist and a celebrated writer. But like his, I mean, it's kind of like that was second to. I mean, and maybe that's because he transferred that aesthetic passion into being able to do it with words. I mean, I guess I would argue on some level if he if he were. I mean, on some level, he spent. I mean, he wrote zillions of words i don't know how many volumes they come to but they're a lot the words just pour out of them if he were as physical a being as he wanted to be he wouldn't have bothered with all these words i mean do you know what i mean like yeah it's you know i think if he were just a drunk at the bar he'd have just been a drunk at the bar like if he was happy you know apparently he was a drunk at the bar (laughs) but you know like at least he likes to drink a little bit (laughs) but like you know part of him was um you know, he was a wordsmith above all. He probably sort of loved words more than anything else, you know, as do I probably. But he says, I owe my success to having listened respectfully to the very best advice and then going away and doing the exact opposite, <laughs> you know, which is kind of a classic move. But, you know, we have a lot of people in the film, you know, the Marshall, you know, whether it's Henry Rollins or, or Clint Eastwood or, you know, just, you know, please, can we not sort of phone in the conventional wisdom at every point? You know, can we please carve our own path? Which, in a way, is a, a cliche itself. But, you know, in... Because in, in you many know, ways, to, to carve your own path, you have to know the conventional w- wisdom well enough to see where it fails. Right. Because to that's me, a good I, point. To be a, a kind of class, like, doesn't... You know, yeah, that's like, meaningless. It's not like Picasso started doing abstract stuff. Like, Hardly. People that innovate the tradition usually get a, an intuitive deep sense for it so well that they say it doesn't but this is where the gap is precisely like, the innovators yeah. are the ones that right become that know the tradition yeah. i mean i've read thousands of novels and i i found myself finally wearing of the form and so i've entered this form of wayward nonfiction. you'll like this line i think scott i mean this is so amazing i believe in getting into hot water i think it keeps you clean <laughs> God, isn't that great? That is so great to me. I, that's that's Chesterton yeah, for I me. Mean, that, isn't that? I don't know. That aphorism is so. Uh, it's one of those things where you could because hot water, like you know, it's this. You think of the shower, but then also the metaphor for trouble, and then the clean, like these. It's a great point because the hot that, water could be a shower. It could then. It's all. It's more conventionally. I believe in getting into hot water. Is I get into trouble, but right. then the cleanliness as you take takes you back to the shower, takes you to the baptism, the confession. It's it, amazing. Yeah. That's an incredible because then it takes you back to realizing the criminal under the hat. So your totally. the cleanliness is a, an awareness. So right, so it's the not amazing. I think it keeps you clean, and it's so. And even to say I think, like it's he's not promising. He doesn't say it keeps you clean. I think it keeps you clean. Yeah. I mean, it's this line that I, I love a Flaubert who says, you know, I probably quoted it the last time we talked, he says the value of a, a work of art can be measured by the harm spoken of it. 
it's kind of a bad translation of the French, but, you know, the value of a work of art can be measured by the harm spoken of it. You know, namely, a good work of art, you know, causes trouble. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I mean, some obvious conventional examples, whether, you know, Petronius is the satiricon or um, Chatterley's love, you know. Yeah. Um, has, Chatter, what's it called? Um, Lady Chatterley's Chatterley. Lady Chatterley's lover or, or Ulysses or, you know, Tropic of Cancer or what's a current, you know, even American Psycho or, or whatever the books are, you know, sort of books of mine that have gotten me in, into mild trouble. But, you know, trouble, man, bring trouble. Yeah. You know, that, that, I mean, of course, that doesn't sort of mean to underwrite sort of criminal enterprises, but, you know, art is trouble. Yeah. It's not uh, a warm bath. You know, it's trouble. I mean, I believe in that quite quite seriously yeah no I, yeah i mean i i couldn't agree more so any i mean again we could talk all i mean tell me if you want any particular lines that you wanted to push on me or can you i mean it's fascinating how much i love chesterton even though you know he's patriarchal in ways like he definitely thinks of women as you know the help made you know obviously he was a man of his time yeah, yeah he's christian in ways that i'm not he's i i gather politically conservative in ways that i don't think of myself as being he's also you know supposedly i don't know if it's you know there's a sort of idea of him as anti-semitic is there any truth yeah, to that yeah, there are i mean it's it's again it's this it's sort of uh yeah he's a man of his time right and yeah i mean where does the anti-semitic charge come from was he is there some real yeah yeah i mean there's things he said i mean it's not it, it's not a kind of uh I mean, I think it's a sort of anti-Semitism of the time. Right. It's not a kind of, uh, it's not a kind of, um, third right kind of thing. Right. Yeah, no, he's a man of his time. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. He's a man, it's interesting because he's a man ahead of his time and also an appreciator of the wisdom of the past in ways that are transcendent of his time. And yet, like, he gets in hot water. He's, I know. He's no saint. I mean. And this is a line that's, I mean, I know what you mean. And this, this I really love. I don't know. This sort of takes us back to trouble, uh, the trouble with men, reflections on sex, love, marriage, porn, and power. This book I wrote a year ago or so, which we talked about last time, which I think this is really true. It's a, l- a little corny, but he says, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God. Ah, absolutely. I believe in that totally. Absolutely. Like, tell me what, what, I mean, I guess I'm conducting the interview now, but like what, I just think like sex is so serious. The idea that it, it's so serious. It's so, and you so- find the transcendent through the connection with the other and, and right. the sexual being, I mean, because it, 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 it also, it's like, that Rowan Williams wrote this great essay called The Body's Grace. And you, you say things and do things that, that you're so into at the moment, you wouldn't want to do it, be doing anything else. And yet you'd never want most people to ever see you do them, even though, oh, we all do. That. It's, it's this, it's this, because also it's one of these things where the particular gives way to the universal, because it's, it's it, this act that's so particular and so embodied connects you to the universal, right? And that's, I mean, that's the power and the mystery of it, right? Yeah. I mean, sex is, everything's about sex. What do they say? Everything's about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Well, but, that's the that's the epigraph of from my book. Right, yeah. right. That's it. That's <laughs> what I, I quoted that to my wife the other day, and I was thinking about where I got, yeah. That was great. That's so funny. It's from, uh, people think that Oscar Wilde said it, but Wilde may have said it, and then it's quoted in, um, I always forget 
the name of that that TV show that had Kevin Spacey in it. Oh, House of Cards. They kind of paraphrase it, but it was originally said by uh, a, tw- uh, a mid twentieth century Swiss psychologist named Robert Michels or Robert Mickel, who just says uh, everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. It's like whoa. What did your wife say in response? Did she agree with that or push back? Or she yeah, goes, you know, we were watching this season two of um, this Netflix show called Mind Hunter, which is kind of dramatization of the. I know I've heard of it, oh, but it's I have amazing. Is it good? Oh, it's these first guys that are becoming the behavioral science unit, and they're interviewing this gay guy who's really into BDSM and who became a serial killer, and they're talking Whoa. about the dynamics and and uh, tops and bottoms. It's very intense, and it's. And my wife and I, this scene is amazing, right? Because the, the woman... Is this a documentary? No, or is, no, it's, it's a drama. It's a, but it's, a, it's, it's drunk, fictionalized. Based on heavily research, yeah. yeah. So, like, we were just looking at, like, the dynamic between the interview, the two interviewers and the guy. And I said, that's what I came up... That's what I quoted uh, the line because I was like... It was just so deep because he was like, we, we all start off as bottoms because then you got to know uh, as a top what the... It, he's... Like, is this something he says that we all start said, off as bottoms? Yeah, he's he's saying that is in a sort of gay um, BDSM sort of scene in the seventies, and he's sort of like you know we all all us top start off as because now you get get a feel for what the bottom wants and the pain and this and this, and it's just I, and that quote came to mind. Really, we just said that wow, like yeah, that's right. apropos here. Fascinating. Um, I mean, I won't. I don't want to bore you, but um, I'm trying to think of a, a line to finish on that sort of. Um, that's kind of great place to end perhaps it's i think people quoted a lot from chesterton where he says um a dead thing can go with the stream but only a living thing can go against it is that a famous chestertonism like it's sort of so beautiful where he's sort of like you know he has i believe in getting into hot water um i believe it keeps you clean like you know Push back, for Christ's sake. You know, show a little resistance. You know, show us show us your soul. You know, show yeah. us. Don't just be one more, you know, sort of rock in the stream. And, you know, again, it's sort of not to call everything back to my little Marshawn Lynch project. But, you know, that's that connects it pretty, pretty beautifully. Yeah. You know, and it's in push the, the fuck back. You know, it's, in, it's an enchanting and enlivening piece of art i mean i i felt that when i watched it i, felt, I felt more alive for thank watching. you that's high praise thanks again david thank you scott it. thanks a million thanks for listening to give and take if you like what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to David Shields for talking Chesterton with me. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.